Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. John Simpson thought he was going to liberate Moscow like he earlier liberated Kabul. Andrew Neil, all these eggheads. What's her name? The one that's in the uh, Atlantic who's married to the Polish former minister who thanked the United States for blowing up the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline before later seeking to delete it, forgetting that the internet is forever. She said that it was Putin's Tsar Alexander II moment. One by one, they said that this was the end for the Russian president, and they waxed lyrical about how it needed to be the end of Russia itself. Their glee was a trifle difficult to understand because the next president of Russia, according to them, was going to be a former chef who spent nine years in jail as a thief and who had always been described, ever since Wagner came to public consciousness, as the head of a fighting organization of rapists and murderers, the scum, the sweepings of the Russian jailhouses, given a free pardon for their crimes if they served their time in uniform in Wagner. In other words, a terrorist, and that's how he was except for a few hours yesterday, officially designated. So as Russia has more nuclear weapons than any country on the globe, they were gleefully looking forward to a former convict turned chef and now mercenary warlord being in charge of the world's largest nuclear arsenal. It's rather difficult to understand how for anybody that would have been a step forward. But such is their hatred of Putin since he lifted Russia up off the floor, dusted it down, turned it back into a superpower with economic, political, diplomatic and military power to match that they were looking forward to Prigozhin being the next president of Russia. I'm not making it up. The fact that the principal criticism of Wagner towards President Putin and the current leadership of the Ministry of Defense in Moscow is that they are not killing enough Ukrainians, that they are not bombing enough, rocketing enough, advancing hard enough, that they have not turned Ukraine into a desert 
of rubble, that they have not leveled the cities of Western Ukraine, that they have not destroyed the civilian infrastructure of Ukraine. That's their beef with Putin, that he has been too soft, too cautious, too kid gloves. Again, I ask, how would that have been an advance for the Ukrainian people and their backers if Prigozhin had taken power in the state? Now, as I was one of the first and most consistent over the last 24, 36 hours to point out that not since Rocky Marciano fought Don Coquel, a horizontal chump, has there been a greater mismatch than that between Vladimir Putin and Prigozhin? The idea that Wagner could successfully overthrow Putin was perfectly preposterous unless you are one of those whose wish overcomes their intellect, their objectivity, their ability to reason and calculate. And my God, we have so many of those. And over so many conflicts, so many little Hitlers, so many wars, so many dictators that they have declared dead, declared gone, declared about to go, declared must go. They never learn, but the people that own the so-called mainstream media never learn either and keep putting them up and on every single time. And they seem to suffer no embarrassment about the fact that they are consistently, utterly wrong about everything, but they're never as wrong about anything as they are about Russia. It is, in Britain at least, an historic disease, a condition, a hatred of Russia that predates Putin, predates even the communists, the Bolsheviks, predates the Russian Revolution, predates uh, the aforementioned Tsar Alexander, goes back all the way to Catherine the Great because Russia has a potential imperial rival uh, to the British, has been hated throughout, even though the royal families of Russia and Britain were, of course, interconnected, all of them grandsons of Queen Victoria. The detestation of Russia ever since the Crimean War has, of course, been even more deep. And the hatred of Bolshevism, of the British leadership, has never passed, even though Bolshevism truly has. I've got to say this to you, and I know that many of you don't want to hear it, and many of you will not even believe it. But Russia is not the Soviet Union. And I don't say that as if it was a good thing. If Russia was the Soviet Union... Prigozhin would not have got off the mark. The KGB troops, the blocking troops, would never have allowed him to get anywhere near Rostov on Don. Never mind to temporarily take charge of the congestion charge area of the city, which is what he did for a few hours yesterday. 
If Russia was the uh, Soviet Union, it would be in a much better and stronger place. Trust me on that in relation to the to destroy it, which are even now underway and will never cease, will never stop until they have broken Russia up into what they think are constituent parts, weakened it forever and dispensed with a rival to them and even a rival that can trump them. They will never rest. So Russia is not the Soviet Union and Putin is not Lenin. His remarks in the midst of this crisis about 1917, uh, which he called a stab in the back, are evidence enough of that. Putin is not Lenin, and I'm not saying that like it's a good thing either. People frequently think they're insulting me by calling me a Putinist or a Putin supporter. I'm not. I support Mr. Zhugano, the leader of the main opposition in Russia that nonetheless, in the moment of crisis, stepped up to the mark and gave its absolute support to the president, to the republic, and to the unity of the Russian world, which we must now increasingly think and speak of. But it happened. It was allowed to go forward bloodlessly because Putin did not want to call on his armed forces to open fire, not just on fellow Russians, not just on fellow members of the Russian armed forces, but fellow Russian members of the armed forces that had acquitted themselves heroically in battle. They might be rapists and murderers and scum, as the West called them, but they sure could fight a kind of dirty dozen with Prigozhin as Clint Eastwood in the movie, or Ernest Borgnine, perhaps. The truth is, though, that if he did that, if he embarked on that, what turned out to be a mass protest rather than an attempt at a coup, I mean, it wasn't January 6th, was it? There weren't people running around with buffalo heads on. There weren't people casting their mantras and their black magic in the corridors of the Kremlin. It wasn't a real coup like that. It wasn't like the coup uh, on Elm Street in 1963 when the Americans murdered their own president in broad daylight. It wasn't that kind of a coup. It was more comic opera. It was more demonstrative than anything else. But our good friend Scott Ritter thinks uh, that uh, Prigozhin was paid by foreign elements to do it. I don't often second-guess Scott Ritter, and I seldom feel that I've had any cause to, but I don't agree with them about that. If it's true that the Americans gave arguably billions of dollars, maybe that $6.2 billion that they found behind the cushion in the sofa in the Pentagon, but if they paid them anything at all, they didn't get value for money. That is for sure. And I don't think that Prigozhin, already a vastly rich oligarch, had any need of their money. I think sometimes when it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, that's because it is a duck. 
I think it was one of these squabbles uh, at the top between people, the narcissism of the small difference, which became elevated to the point of ridiculousness in Prigozhin's mind and set him off on the course of action. So I disagree with Scott Ritter on that. But it has to be acknowledged that there is a third way. It has to be acknowledged that it may be neither Mr. Ritter's or mine story, theory, thesis that comes to be seen as the truth. Because there's increasingly a lot of reason to think that this was all a hoax organized between Putin and Prigozhin. And if so, it would be the hoax of the 21st century. At its most extreme form, Prigozhin is approached by the United States who offer him a vast sum of money, half now, half later, when you've done the job, if you will organize a coup and overthrow President Putin. Prigozhin takes the half and tells Putin. And between the two of them, they organize what happened over the last 36 hours. Now I can hear one or two skeptical voices. Except when I look at it, now that Prigozhin is in Belarus, a matter of fact, a mere 100 kilometers away from Kiev, that doesn't sound like a kind of exile that you would send a traitor onto. Sounds more like a place you would send someone who remains a vital threat to NATO and its satrapy in Kiev. After all, they got within a few hours of Moscow, but they're now within minutes of Kiev. Now, this theory of all to steal America's money, make a fool of Andrew Neil and and John Simpson and so on have much weight. If it were not for the following. If Putin wanted to smoke out within his regime, within his elite, amongst the oligarchs in his capital city of Moscow, this was the ideal way to do it. After all, the West and its correspondents were telling us that Putin's hours were numbered, not that his days were numbered, that nobody was going to fight for him, that Prigozhin was going to drive right through the Kremlin gates. Well, it would be useful to know who amongst his circle and amongst the wider elite in Russia would have been happy if that had come to pass. Well, now he knows. As it was, nobody at all, never mind anybody of importance, nobody at all backed Prigozhin. Everybody, everybody backed Putin. Everybody in the upper strata of the armed forces, the FSB, the intelligence community, the politicians, 
the opposition in the Duma, uh, the media, aristocracy, and the oligarchs, so far as we know, all of them remained loyal to Putin. So how can we disprove this theory? Well, if that is not Prigozhin sleeping on that bench in Minsk, and it makes sense that it might be, I thought as soon as I saw it that it was him. But if it isn't, if he prospers in Minsk, if his men begin quietly to transfer to the Belarus border, a hundred kilometers from Kiev, if he doesn't find a balcony to fall off, if his money is not touched, if he does not come to an unhappy ending at the hands of the FSB or GRU or one of the other Russian agencies, uh, then that will tend to be evidence supporting the idea that the entire thing was a confidence trick. If, of course, the corollary is also true, if, the, if he is a man looking for a balcony to fall off, if we never hear of him again, if his money mysteriously disappears and they found millions and millions of dollars in cash, in his headquarters in St. Petersburg, if that money isn't returned to him, if his name is never mentioned again, if Wagner becomes Tchaikovsky and is fully integrated into the Russian armed forces, then the theory that it was all set up by Putin in the first place will begin to hold less and less water. But if the opposite is true, and if we see him on top of a tank making the very short 100-kilometer journey to Kiev, well, we'll know that all was not what it seemed. A riddle inside, a mystery inside, an enigma. But then that's what Russia has always been for those who cannot understand it because of the myopia of their own hatred the myopia of their own inability to see clearly through the fog that oftentimes surrounds times of war. We are very fortunate tonight that our first guest knows even more about military political issues than me and Scott Ritter. He's Colonel Douglas McGregor, and he's coming up right after this. It's going to be, I tell you, the mother of all talk shows. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Now we've got a poll running. Who will win the battle of the billionaires, Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg? Thousands of you have voted, somewhat to my surprise, and there's only one winner so far. Get voting on Twitter, on Telegram, and on YouTube. Now, Colonel Douglas McGregor has forgotten more about war and military politics than almost anyone on the planet. That's why you won't find him on the mainstream television because they want fools who will feed the narrative that they have already prescribed as the one they want the masses to swallow. But we're not like that here on the mother of all talk shows. We want to get as far as possible to the truth. That's why Colonel Douglas McGregor joins us now. Colonel, thank you for coming back on the show. It's been some time uh, since we met. Um, well, let's start with the overview, if uh, we can. What do you think happened in Russia over the last 36 hours? Well, I wouldn't call it a coup. Uh, I think what happened is that Mr. Prigozhin, who, as you know, is a well-known blowhard and has frequently said outrageous things, reached a conclusion that I think a lot of people in the senior ranks of the Russian army have reached, and that is two things. First, that this war has dragged on too long, and they want Putin to take decisive action to end it. And then secondly, uh, I, I think the uh, fear is that the United States will be tempted to intervene in Western Ukraine with its Polish allies and others, potentially, if this does not come to an end. And so Prigozhin staged this. He went down to Rostov to the theater command center. He stayed there. There was no violence, but then he dispatched 4,000 troops to go toward Moscow. 30,000 troops in the Moscow garrison were mobilized and prepared to fight. And ultimately, Russian aircraft and attack helicopters were used against the 4,000 troops that Prigozhin had sent toward Moscow. So at least in Moscow, people took this very seriously. As soon as there was any indication of fighting and that anyone could be killed, Prigozhin immediately called a halt to it. Lukashenko, who has known Mr. Prigozhin for 20 years at least and is a close friend of his, spoke with Putin, who gave him permission to talk directly to Prigozhin. And the outcome was, as you say, Prigozhin leaves and goes to Belarusia. Uh, there will be no charges against him. And one of the reasons for that is that both the Wagner Group and Prigozhin are very popular with the Russian people. They see him as the kind of aggressive leader that they want on the battlefield in this war with Ukraine. So I think what we have now to expect is a very powerful offensive will be leashed, unleashed, that is, against the Ukrainians. 
And then secondly, I think you're going to see some changes at the top of the Russian command structure. I would expect General Sorovikin in particular to rise as a result of this. But like you, I see no evidence, frankly, that uh, Mr. Prigozhin was made an agent by MI6 or the CIA or anybody else. Anybody who knows the Russians knows that any senior officer or commander or leader is surrounded by numerous FSB informants. The idea that he could have sold out even if he'd wanted to seems ludicrous. Yes, that's also my view. Uh, let's uh, start at Machiavelli in The Prince. He warns uh, the powerful against reliance on the mercenary. Uh, it would never have happened in the old days that I look back on more fondly than you do. Uh, the idea that a Bonaparte would be allowed to arise uh, within the state uh, is uh, fanciful. Zhukov didn't last long on his white horse after the victory parade in 1945, precisely for that reason. And I apologize for comparing Zhukov with Prigozhin, but uh, it makes my point uh, that how did it come to pass that the Russians allowed the growth of this mercenary power inside their uh, polity, their military polity, and a man like Prigozhin at the head of it. Well, I would reject uh, the notion that these people are mercenaries. I would compare them to the French Foreign Legion. The French Foreign Legion consists of large numbers of non-Frenchmen in many cases, but they have sworn allegiance to the French state and the French nation, and no one has fought harder and more loyally for France than the French Foreign Legion. I would say you have something very similar in the Wagner Group. Uh, these are still Russians overwhelmingly, but there are numbers of Serbs or some Germans or others in the group, and they too have sworn allegiance to the Russian state. And as far as we can tell, none of them thought that they were marching on Moscow to remove Putin. On the contrary, they saw themselves as going to Moscow to rescue Putin from what uh, was widely considered bad advisors, bad counselors, who have held up the Russian offensive and caused this war to drag out beyond the point of reason. Well, let's turn to that, for that is, of course, the most important point. Uh, the, the, the dichotomy has been, although you wouldn't think it reading the Western media, between people who want more and harder war in Ukraine and people like Putin who want to proceed cautiously, uh, bit by bit, uh, not going farther than they need to, not doing more than they must. Uh, and that balance is bound to have been deleteriously affected from the point of view of Ukraine and its uh, Western backers. Uh, which makes it all the more odd that they were cheering on Prigozhin quite so enthusiastically, Colonel. I think you're dealing with a lot of wishful thinkers in the West. These are the same people that continue to tell everyone that the Russians are incompetent, stupid, badly led, uh, poorly organized. That's all nonsense. This is The Russians have proven, if anything, to be extremely professional, very competent. I think a number of things have occurred, though, in recent months. One is that it's very clear that the Ukrainians have collapsed militarily for all intents and purposes. The casualties they've taken are horrific. There really isn't much left. And lots of senior officers, and I'm sure Sorovikin is one of them, have said, look, let's get on with this, put an end to this. 
regain control of everything east of the Dnieper, uh, regain control of Odessa, then we can decide what we want to do next. The second thing is there's been a lot of very dangerous talk in Washington about nuclear weapons. Uh, you have this piece of legislation that's under consideration in the Senate that talks about threatening Russia with nuclear strikes if they detect anything that they consider to be evidence for a Russian nuclear uh, operation. The Russians have made it very clear they will not use nuclear weapons unless we do. However, Zelensky has been encouraging his forces to attack the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant on the Dnieper River. The Russians have guarded it and protected it, tried to shut it down as much as possible because they don't want the radioactivity loose. But this is the kind of dirty bomb threat that Zelensky has made real for a long time. As a result, the Russians, I think, collectively have said, good Lord, what happens if this man Zelensky succeeds in something at the plant uh, that it amounts to a dirty bomb or the equivalent of it, and then the U.S. uses it as an excuse to intervene and launch a tactical nuclear weapon against us? I think these things were also in Prigozhin's mind. I think it's why Prigozhin said, I've got to do something dramatic to get Putin's attention. Remember, Putin and he have known each other for many years. This is, this is not, uh, this is not what people think. That's why I don't buy the notion it's a coup. I think he got Putin's attention. I think we're going to see change at the top. And I think this offensive is going to be unleashed. That's the outcome that Prigozhin wanted. And well, that to be now unleashed, uh, it would indeed, as you put it, uh, be everything up to the river and everything to the south, uh, including virtually the whole of the seaboard and certainly including Odessa. That would leave a, a rump state, to put it kindly, a kind of Kosovo-style uh, rump entity uh, that would be of interest, I would have thought, to at least the Poles and maybe even the Hungarians also, uh, and, and would redraw the, the map uh, completely. Would the Americans shrug and accept that? Or would that strengthen the Lindsey Grahams and uh, Blumenthal and the like, who clearly want America and Russia in a toe-to-toe -to -toe shooting war, including shooting nuclear missiles uh, in Europe? Well, I don't know that uh, the fools in Washington really want a nuclear confrontation. I think they enjoy threatening it. They don't understand uh, what they're talking about. And I know the Russians don't. Uh, there's much truth in what you're saying, except that I would point out that Putin would probably accept almost any solution on the west side of the Dnieper along the lines that you described, provided whatever emerges in this rump state is neutral. And that was the real concern from the very beginning. Uh, he wasn't interested in going to war. He wasn't interested in marching into Kiev or anything else. He simply wanted Ukraine to be neutral, not a platform for NATO and the United States to use against him. And if uh, we and uh, the people that border Russia are willing to sign a treaty that accepts neutrality for what remains, I'm sure that Putin would go along with it. No foreign bases, no foreign forces. That would be his concern. Yes. Uh, and of course, that could have been uh, achieved. Uh, in fact, an outcome less onerous than that could have been achieved under the aegis of President Erdogan uh, until Boris Johnson was dispatched to quash it. 
Do you think he did that of his own volition or did Washington tell him to? Uh, how do I uh, say this as diplomatically as possible? London is Washington's puppet. End of discussion. So unfortunately, no, he didn't think of it on his own, though he's quite capable of dumb ideas. I agree. But nevertheless, this dumb idea came out of Washington to keep the war going. It's it's over. The wa people in Washington know the Ukrainians are finished. They know they can't replace the losses. The question now is what comes next. And nobody wants to accept publicly the fact that the Russians are in a strategically powerful and dominant position. That's not going to change. But there is still margin for mistakes and error. There's still an opportunity here for someone to push too far, for an opportunity for the U.S. to engage in, a, in an intervention that could widen this war and make it Europe-wide. That's the real danger. We're not prepared for it, by the way. Let's be quite clear on this. We don't have the ammunition. We don't have the forces on the ground. But it's it's not impossible. And I think that's what drove Prigozhin. I think that's what concerns the senior officers in the Russian army. They want to end it. Now, uh, the uh, senior officers, uh, undoubtedly at the front, are tired of the Minister of Defense. They're tired of the top brass back in Moscow. Do you think that replacing them, rotating them, finding some way of nudging them sidewards or upstairs to the boardroom or whatever was part of the negotiation with Prigozhin? Yes, although I'm sure that uh, President Putin did not uh, obligate himself to do exactly what Prigozhin argued should be done. Nevertheless, I think, yes, he understands now clearly that Prigozhin is not the Lone Ranger. Everyone at the top, or almost everyone in the battlefield, wants to get on with this. It reminds me, frankly, of 1990 and 91, when we were sitting in the desert and suddenly there were discussions about turning the border between Saudi Arabia and Kuwait into something like the Korean border, something that Colin Powell at the time seemed to advocate, and we feared that most of the Army four stars would accept. Fortunately, President Bush rejected that out of hand and said no. And we were all greatly relieved when we attacked because we didn't want to sit in that desert eternally. Now, I think the same feeling is very widespread inside the ranks of the Russian army. People are sitting there. I don't want to be here next year. So let's get on with this. Let's attack. Let's destroy these people. Let's force people to the table, come up with an agreement, and we can go home. Now, is things, uh, are things rather uh, changing in Washington? After all, Joe Biden visibly enfeebled, uh, sorry to say this uh, as diplomatically as I can, uh, London may be Washington's puppet, but the puppet master uh, in the Oval Office leaves a very great deal to be desired. Seldom can there have been a ventriloquist as unimpressive as Joe Biden. But he looks enfeebled. He looks confused. He looks not an inch the war leader. And he's now got Donald Trump emerged as the leader of the anti-war movement in America, and he's got RFK Jr. inside his own party, burning up the track with, if anything, an even more trenchant anti-war position. And we're not that far distant from the next uh, primaries and then the next presidential election. Do you think things might begin to change on the home front in that regard? 
<clears throat> well, first of all, I think uh, our friend Biden is a is a cutout. I don't think he's actually in charge of much. I think he reads from the script that's presented to him. He has powerful forces behind him, powerful donors, and he's got key people in the administration who are helping to manage and handle him. <clears throat> so they're going to keep him there as long as they possibly can, because he's at least a face that Americans don't necessarily hate. They may not think much of him, but they don't hate him. Uh, but he may not last out the year. And if he doesn't last, then our friend Kamala Harris, who may temporarily become vice president, won't last long. Everyone knows that she's not capable of exercising uh, the powers of the office. So the question is, who comes next? As far as the future election is concerned, many of us in the United States have no faith in the electoral integrity of our system. There's too much cheating, too much lying, mass absentee ballots, mass vo uh, voter mail-in ballots, all sorts of nonsense that provides in the blue states opportunities for cheating. So I'm not sure <clears throat> I'm not sure when change comes, it necessarily will come as a result of the ballot box. That would be preferred, but I think we're in for more difficult times than that. Well, difficult, but certainly interesting. And the times will always be interesting, as long as you and I can continue to talk about them here on the mother of all talk shows, God willing. Thank you, Colonel Douglas McGregor. I'm sorry we lost the, uh, at least we lost the visual, but I hope we kept the audio. Uh, let me take a quick break while I see what has happened. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Let's take some calls. Uh, David in Swindon uh, in England. Go ahead, David. Thank you very much. Um, first thing, I agree with you, your opening remarks as usual, because I've been steaming all day. Um, about the feeding frenzy of the press worldwide. The last time we had a feeding frenzy like this was on the 15th of November last year. And that was when that, uh, so say, um, Russian missile fell in Poland. Do you remember? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and the, 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 then it was the start of the Third World War. The Americans were saying we're going to invoke Article 5 or whatever. Next day, it had all gone. Mm -hmm. Sorry, mistake. Exactly the same as this. I think that Putin is stronger. All the, all the BBC, I think Putin is stronger. He's actually got rid of this, I don't know, so say coup, which I don't believe it because was. In a, in a day, in a day. Yeah. He's done it in a day. What other world leader could have put it to bed in a day? So now, now he's got the guy in Belarusia. He's got most of the um, brigade signed up to the Russian people. So it's a win-win. Yeah, I think so, too. But what do you think of the, if you like, the alternative theory uh, that uh, it was all a hoax for some purpose as yet unclear? It was all too easy. The guy was never got, and it's quite funny because it, it, the, the thing he went up was called the M4, wasn't it? You know, the motorway that runs from yes. Ros yes. Don up to yes. Moscow. He's called the M4. Well, I'm on Moscow, the M4. Yeah. I'm on yeah. the M4 in Swindon here. So... Yeah. It, <laughs> no way could he, with, yeah. two, with two battalions, could he ever have gone from like Bristol, stopping along the way in Salisbury, taking over that. He never took those towns over. That was another misconception. That he's saying he, he never took anything over. over. No, he never took it. He might have exactly. visited the military backs in, in um, Salisbury. He might have gone in and taken, you know, 
just dropped in there for, to refuel. So, but in the BBC and ITV were saying that he actually took these places over. Absolute miracle. And then, let's yeah, yeah. say he was going along the M4 in his tanks or whatever, Putin could have easily taken him out with some jets. You know, he could have got five fighter jets and of just course. annihilated them. And he didn't. Of and course. I agree with you. There's something underlying going on there. It has. But the BBC uh, was, as often now, I'm sorry to say, uh, the worst of them all. They went into open air coverage. Uh, and their uh, frenzy could not be contained. And they misreported and they thus deceived their viewers and their compulsory license pairs. Throughout, uh, they uh, continued to talk about a 30,000 strong column advancing on Moscow. It was 4,000. And they were only advancing because the Russian military won attacking and killing them, as they could easily have done by air power alone. It was 4,000, not 30,000. It was uh, a few dozen vehicles, not hundreds of vehicles, as they were reported. They did not take over Rostov on Don. They parked themselves outside the uh, military headquarters, in the center of the town, the congestion charge area, and put uh, dynamite around them and told the public to stay away, fired a couple of shots in the air to make sure that they did. That's not taking over Rostov on Don. The, the wish began uh, to become fact in the minds of the hysterics some of them literal hysterics that have the pens, have the microphones, have the media power in our society. But here's the rub. Of course, there's a lot of sheep. Of course, the sheepdogs can still marshal the sheep, even onto the final journey. But the number of sheep is falling away. Not sharply, but steadily. And with each successive episode like this one, the credibility of the hysterics in charge of the pens and the microphones is diminished still further. That must be true. Otherwise, we must can have no faith in humanity. It must be true that man by man, woman by woman, people start saying, wait a minute, that didn't work out the way they told us it was working out. And now that I think about it, neither did the issue before that. The submarine, the COVID, the Ukraine, the Prigozhin, the coup, it's one thing after another in which experts, so-called, are dragooned to ram narratives down our throats and more and more people are finding it very unpalatable and are looking elsewhere. Let's talk with Michael in Washington State, and he wants to talk about leadership, don't we all, Michael? Go ahead. Yeah, thank you for taking my call, George. You are the shining light in the dark world today, and very grateful for that. Thank you, brother. 
we're in a real predicament with these leaders who think that uh, what's going on is a win. And I'd like to offer a solution for this so that when people go to vote, they can make it pretty simple. And what I've seen over the decades is that there are two types of people who lead. There are people who initiate and use the win-win scenario, like Donald Trump and RFK. And then there are the win-losers, uh, the destroyer types, who use the win-lose, who's someone else's loss is their gain. And I think we're filling up with a lot, a lot of destroyers in charge of things. And I think if people evaluate people that they want to vote for as either a builder type for win-win or a destroyer type that uses win-lose, I think we could make um, things much better much sooner. What do you think? Well, I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, I, w I would give us the best example of win-win leadership, the Chinese leadership. Uh, in fact, sometimes to a maddening point, uh, they are utterly devoted to the win-win principle. Uh, and they apply it across their ASEAN relations, but they also apply it across their intercontinental relations, even with countries that are uh, mad at them and want to weaken and even destroy them. I mean, how do we get to a situation, for example, that a Chinese company, reportedly a CPC-linked company, a Communist Party of China-linked company, is sending $5 million, at least $5 million, to Hunter Biden, how does that compute? And in response to a threat uh, from Hunter Biden, uh, we're going to have to talk about this more deeply on another night, but Biden sent a text to a Chinese businessman telling him that he was sitting right next to his father, then the vice president of the United States. And if this Chinese man did not send him the money right away, then there would be hell to pay uh, from his father, who was on the other end of the conversation. How does that compute? Now, maybe this businessman was not politically connected. Maybe nobody in the state in China uh, knew this corrupt relationship existed? Maybe. But it's also possible uh, to say that Joe Biden's leadership actually always, from the first day 54 years ago when he entered Washington, D.C., he's been a destroyer. If you look at his style, if you look at his legislative uh, agenda and priorities, trying to jail people that are doing exactly the same things his son, of whom he's inordinately proud, uh, has obviously been uh, doing. I would say Biden's always been a destroyer, Michael. Last word to you. And it's kind of, I'm kind of curious as to as bad as Joe Biden is uh, doing that son of a bee thing or uh, getting uh, his, 
some guy fired in Ukraine. Yeah, he could say, well, you're not going to get those weapons unless you release Gonzalo. I mean, he could at least do that. But he, he, he won't do that, and he won't call off the hounds of Julian Assange. He's, he's a mean and vindictive guy. I have no idea why people think I'm grandfatherly. I wouldn't let him near any of my kids or grandkids. Michael, thank you for that call. Uh, my patrons keep me going. Uh, and James Butler is one of those. And he says, anyone who thinks all this is a serious threat to Putin and Russia badly underestimated him. This is smoke and mirrors. Something big is going to happen in the next month, in the next week, I think, James. Uh, and uh, Amot's legend uh, has written, Graham Briggs-White, uh, says this about the poll. But why can't the entire real left unite to form another party? Tusk, the Workers' Party of Britain and the rest. No one has been able to give me a satisfactory answer. Uh, well, we're ready to work with all kinds of people, but we're not going to join a party uh, with which we have fundamental disagreements. And we have fundamental disagreements uh, with some of those that you mentioned there. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're not prepared to work with them. And I appeal to all such organizations to join us in no to NATO, no to war. Because that's simple. We all agree on its demands, don't we? Don't we? And if we do, why are we not all together in that broad front? Uh, to try and get Britain out of NATO, try and stop the war. I'll be speaking, I'm indeed chairing and speaking at the next uh, online meeting of No to NATO, No to War, which is next Thursday. So uh, please keep looking out for the details, the speakers and the coordinates uh, of that. And Chris Divismus, a.k.a. Bartram, says the big question for me is, does Elon Musk have a conscience, and is the Tucker Carlson monologue evidence that he might? I don't know. I wouldn't bet my life on his conscience, uh, but he's certainly performing a signal service to the cause of freedom of speech in the world today, which would be far more restricted than it is now because of his ownership of Twitter. I'm still suing him in the Four courts of Dublin. Don't think I'm pulling out of that, Elon. Now, I know a lot of you will be thinking that the proper answer to who will win the battle of the millionaires is it's a pity they both can't lose. But overwhelmingly, people fancy Elon Musk for the bout, to the extent to which I begin to fear for the safety of Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, almost 15,000 people have voted on this poll and overwhelmingly, 90, 80, 86, 86 people think that Musk is going to malium, as we say in Dundee. Emmanuel's on the line in Philadelphia on the Russian coup. Go ahead, Emmanuel. Hey, Mr. George Galloway, you are, I, I think uh, if it is possible, I will worship you because uh, it is uh, an Thank you. A blasphemy. Thank you. So watch somebody. Look, yeah. Mr. Galloway, let me tell yeah. you something. Yeah. I, 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 I made a decision to change the name of my first son to George Galloway. <laughs> I want my son <laughs> to... 
I'm telling you, the, on, I, 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 I propose to change my first name. I want him to be known as George Galloway. I just decided to name him that name because of you, because of what you have done to the whole world. I've been following you. Well, I, I'm, I'm, it, I'm it, very touched, but I, I advise against it. It will, it will dog you all your, all your life. I'm just hoping my sons, I have three sons and three daughters. I'm hoping they all uh, follow in my footsteps. And let's all live our lives in a way that we'd be proud if our children followed in our footsteps. That's the way I uh, look at it. Now, what do you think happened in the Russian coup, yeah. Emmanuel? Yeah, George, I wanted to ask you because uh, I listened to President Putin and then in his speech, there, there was something that Putin said. He uh, draw the, uh, the lesson of the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. I think what he, what, what he was saying mm. was that uh, such a thing has happened in the past, in 1917, that uh, the Russians were fighting, and then there was something that happened at the back. They were stabbed at the back. They were sabotaged mm. at the back. I wanted to throw a light. What do you think President Putin meant by people... Russian well, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I don't know what he meant. Uh, and uh, I must say before answering you, it was a hell of a speech for a man that's got brain cancer, liver cancer, stomach cancer, uh, kidney cancer, cancer of the bones. He's got every kind of cancer and had a stroke and had a withered arm and could scarcely walk and may even be dead already. It was one hell of a speech by Vladimir Putin. He looked to be as healthy as any man with all those ailments could possibly look. He looked actually vibrant and strong and determined. And, uh, and I, I, I thought as I watched him, how, what the consternation must be amongst the liars and the propagandists that he plainly, quite self-evidently, is not a body double, and that his body isn't bent and withered. And that, as far as can be seen, his organs seem to be firing on all cylinders. I completely disagreed with what I assume he meant, which was that while the Russian army was at the front in the First World War, an imperialist war, which I believe should never have been fought, was fought between three grandsons of Queen Victoria and was all about empire and lands and foreign conquest and so on. That the uprising first in February, not led by the Bolsheviks, and in October of the same year, 1917, led by the Bolsheviks and successful and bringing about the overthrow of uh, the monarchy in Russia, pulling Russia out of the war, uh, I think that he was comparing what Prigozhin had done to that. Uh, but it wasn't a proper comparison for a significant number of reasons. First of all, in scale, uh, this was a maverick, adventurist day outing by... Uh, by a mercenary company leader, uh, your former chef, uh, and, uh, and a man with a very checkered, 
criminal record as a, as a thief. Uh, so uh, the comparison between Prigozhin and Lenin is not a comparison that should be made. And secondly, the mishandling of the war, the self-evident pointlessness of the First World War, the scale of the slaughter of Russian soldiery in the First World War, and the economic starvation and immiseration that was being experienced by the vast mass of Russian workers, peasants, soldiers, and sailors made the revolution absolutely inevitable. And from my point of view, one of the greatest events in the history of the world. So me and Putin are not exactly like that on that subject. If that's what he meant, of course, I have no idea. Martin in Bristol uh, is up next on the coup. Go ahead, Martin. Um, I had invasion in Moscow within an hour of the coup. At the moment, um, people forget Gozin is one of Putin's best friends. He was known as a caterer and did the catering for Putin for about five years. So far, eight, over 1,800 dissidents have been arrested that came out in support of the coup. And um, so I, I personally believe that it was a complete planned psyop, and it was very, very a masterstroke to me. He's gone to Belarus, supposedly in disgrace. He's now organising the army in Belarus. Um, the idea of him um, being blackmailed or, or paid lots of money to do this, he's already a multi-multi-millionaire because of um, the I think he's probably he's a billionaire, actually. Yeah. yeah, I exactly. think he's probably a billionaire, yeah. I don't believe you could buy him. And um, I think it's the masterstroke because purely um, it's uncovered all the people against Putin. Um, you got to remember, he only had a thousand men with him. They didn't do anything violent on the way to Moscow. Um, Putin's got an 80% support rating by the Russian people. So um, the idea of him being successful or anything like that is, is just insane. Um, so personally, he's supposedly been sent to Belarus in disgrace. I believe he's actually now in control and, and planning with the Belarusian army, um, which makes sense. Um, well, look, I, I, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, I, I don't rule it out. I don't reject it out of hand. As I say, I'm, I'm not yet at least in that place that you are. Uh, I also have a problem thinking that Lukashenko would allow Prigozhin to reorganize his army. First of all, his army is rather good, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, his alliance with Russia is now closer than ever before. Indeed, it seems silly to me uh, that they are not one country. They are, of course, linked through various uh, treaties and military and economic and former Soviet territory treaties and so on. But... I would have thought that uh, part of the development of a reunifying of the Russian world that I talked about earlier would include a merger uh, between uh, Belarus and, and uh, the Russian Federation. Uh, and I hope that happens. 
because I think it will be good for everybody uh, concerned. But Lukashenko is uh, very friendly uh, with Prigozhin, and that's why, having taken permission from Putin, he was able to be the intermediary, at least if this official story is the real story. Uh, one question to you, though, uh, Martin, before I have to wind up. Uh, did you see any footage or pictures that were unequivocally pictures, footage of Prigozhin killing Russians on the way up the, the M4? No, absolutely not. And I saw the Russian people come out. It was like a carnival. It wasn't like... But um, Pagosian was here violent. He only had a thousand men with him. The rest were left on the front lines. Um, but Chechen took over anything that um, that Pagosian um, took with him. The Chechens took over from him. Yeah. Um, Belarus yeah. has, has you know, 30,000, 40,000 people, Russian soldiers in Belarus at the moment. Um, and I don't believe yeah. Russia would want Belarus to organise them. Um, well, just one more thing. I don't know if you knew about this, George. Um, Matt Gates, which is a congressman in America, um, two days ago he called a vote giving Biden executive powers to bomb Chinese infrastructure in Cuba, which is insane. I mean, it's totally insane. Um, yeah, yeah, it won't happen, uh, but he does. Uh, he does have the power. Uh, isn't it funny that China cannot have infrastructure in Cuba, but the United States can have infrastructure all around China and can have military bases with nuclear weapons pointing at China all around China. Does nobody with any kind of influence in the United States not stop and think Wait a minute. If we have all this hardware around China, why can't China have one listening post in Cuba? Does nobody ever think that this is a level of exceptionalism too far? Does nobody ever think that, wait a minute, who gave us the right to have more than 800 military bases in countries all over the world and surrounding the countries with which we are in greatest antipathy, but they're not allowed to have even one in our hemisphere. I think that the development of multipolar power in the world should mean and will mean that there will be Russian bases in Venezuela, there will be Chinese bases in Cuba, and maybe Russian bases in Cuba, as there were once upon a time, and Chinese bases in Venezuela. The uh, people of Mexico, uh, right next door to the United States, have elected a president who is striking an independent course and wants to be part of uh, a pan-Latin American development leading into the BRICS uh, under the leadership of AMLO in the north and Lula in the south. Uh, how long before the U.S. tries regime-changing the president of Mexico? And if they do try and fail, why wouldn't Mexico ask 
for support from Russia and China? I would, wouldn't you? If I was the president of Mexico, I'd be surrounded right now by Russian bodyguards, maybe Chinese bodyguards also. Makes sense, doesn't it? Well, look, considering we only had one guest, this show has been a good one and uh, has passed very quickly indeed. And I've now overshot my time. So the results of the poll, 15,000 people voted, almost everybody, certainly 8 out of 10, uh, nearer to 9 out of 10, believe that Elon Musk will win the battle of the billionaires. It's been marvelous for me. Uh, I hope it was for you. And if it was, please come back at the later hour of 9 p.m. UK time on Wednesday for the midweek mother of all talk shows. And please do look back at the Motes of Deutsch from earlier today. It was, I think, the best of our German shows. Till then, good night.